Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Now, right, that's it. Uh, end. end. Um, I don't know if it did any of you um, go away and listen to the C-sharp minor quartet. It's right, you don't have to confess to not having done your homework. It doesn't matter if you haven't. Uh, um, but do you, you might remember that um, we talked about um, the very remarkable Haydn Opus 54 number 2 last week and then got on to this enormous seven-movement work, Beethoven's last, one of Beethoven's last string quartets, Opus 131. Here? Here. Brilliant. Marvellous. Right. Um, so, and um, we, we didn't quite finish it off, and I thought, actually, this is a project we need to finish off. Um, remarkable things about it. First of all, it's in seven movements, although three of the movements are really link movements. Uh, we met an operatic recitative, didn't we, um, for example. Um, so, actually, it's not seven distinctly long movements, but four longish movements uh, and three linking movements. Um, and it started off unusually. I'll just, just a little bit of a revision. Do you remember... Now listen to this. The second note is your B sharp. <laughs> the opening movement starts as a fugue, which of course is extremely unusual, isn't it? Um, fugal forms tended to be not obsolete in the classical era, but they were certainly avoided generally. And here's Beethoven in the late, well, mid-1820s, um, really coming back to revisiting the possibilities of fugue. So the sonata movement as a first movement is much more common than any other form. So he starts with this, and what's more, not just a, a fugue, but a slow contemplative fugue that started like this. Oh, I think the mute's on. <laughs> oh, no, it's not. Hang on. It is now. Right, that was, <laughs> hang on. That sounds well. It was working, wasn't it, a second ago? We were playing something a second ago. That's very odd. Hang on. How about turning it on and off? Yeah. The usual, the usual. Here we are. Um, just while, I, while it works its way up, um, of these five string quartets, um, all of them to some extent, uh, apart from one I suppose you might say, 100, Opus 127 does have four movements, um, Opus 130 has six movements, the last of which was um, originally going to be the Grosser Fugue, which is an enormous 12-minute piece, and Beethoven finally decided to uh, replace it with another, uh, another movement, which is much more light-hearted. Um, which, which goes like this. Something like that. Schubert's last piano sonata. Beethoven had been listened to. Um, and then Opus 131 is the seven movement C sharp minor that we're about to hear, I hope. We will, it's just, right. Opus 131. Opus 132, yes, that's it. Opus 132 um, is in A minor and has, well, it has, it has five movements, really, because um, it has another link movement, but we'll come back to that. And Opus 135, the last string quartet, is a shortish one in five, four movements. But they all behave in unusual manners. Um, right, here we are. What's going to happen? So... Revision of the fugue. 
Ah, got it, we've got it. We've got it, here it is. Opening movement. There's the B sharp leading you to the C sharp. And the emphasis on the note A. And then the second voice, C sharp, E sharp. Emphasis on the note D. Okay. And then the extraordinary gravity of that music is, um, is completely lifted away from, as it were, in the, in the second movement as the key goes, it goes from C sharp minor up a semitone to, to D major. So you feel as though you've lifted to another planet. It couldn't be a more different world, could it, than the first movement. And then there's a short um, recitative, like almost like an operatic shainer, really, the third movement. And again, this is one of those link movements. It's not a movement of it on its own, um, in its own right, but it joins the movements together. theme and that's the, that's the wonderful theme of the variation movement which is the core of the whole work really um, and you'll notice that the um, you know the the recitative starts in the character perhaps of the previous movement um, slightly jaunty and then there's this um, uh, sort of um, cadenza Something like that, um, and then it prepares its path, really, doesn't it, for the for the for the slow movement, for the variations. So the the um, the purpose of those link movements really is to bridge the gap, which is um, an emotional gap, as it were, from one character to another. Uh, and then um, remember what happened next. It's sort of scatterbrained hilarity, isn't it? One of the um, very strongest features of Beethoven's late music is, is profundity, perhaps, transcendental thoughts, um, remoteness, but also hum humour, yeah, humour. In fact, the Dear Belly Variations, which is one of the greatest moments of his late works, one of the greatest things in the late, in the late music, is, is full of crazy humour, isn't it? Really crazy humour, and those amazing bagatelles as well, which are very extraordinary. Humorous. Um, and the most, uh, I suppose that you might say the most humorous moment and the most surprising moment was this.
And that effect, you might remember, is achieved by the strings playing on the bridge. Yeah, so their bows are played on the bridge rather than halfway up the fingerboard, which gives it a very spooky sort of um, uh, ethereal sound, doesn't it? And gradually he suggests or tells them um, to move the bow back to its normal position. And then you, so it sounds like this. And again, the music doesn't stop. It merely is linked into um, another slow movement, very brief one, another, another of the linking movements. Um, and this one takes us back to the character, the profound introspective character of the first movement. And it does more than that. You might remember that the fugue theme we talked about last week has that as a head and as a tail. It has this and a falling four note figure. And as you listen to this, you'll notice that the, um, the first of all, in the viola, you have a falling four-note figure. And the violin. And then, um, yes. So we're back in the world of the... Um, first movement in two ways, both in terms of its character and in terms of melodic cont contour. And so on, we'll run out of time if we hear it all. Um, uh, and then we're into, um, into the finale. And the finale, in a sense, reflects um, an, an earlier piece in the same key. In fact, the only other great piece by Beethoven, the only other major piece by Beethoven in the same key of C-sharp minor. Which is another very unconventional piece, isn't it? Because for the first time, he starts um, a piano sonata, which sounds like a complete slow movement, doesn't it? And in fact, it is a slow movement, of course. It's marked Adagio Sostenuto. And um, although it is a sonata, it is in sonata form. Uh, and then he follows it. I'm not going to play this, because, and you'll see why. Um, he, the, he follows it with a, a little minuet. And then, finally, In fact, what he's done really is worked out the 
and turn those broken chords of the first movement, just this simple accompaniment, then becomes... Oh. Need to warm up for that. Um, uh, you know, it becomes the same idea, only extended vastly up the piano and turned into a very turbulent dramatic sonata form. And it also shifts the weight of the, of the piece towards the last movement. You know, instead of the first movement, the first movement is always the important movement. You know, everything else seems to be, uh, often you feel in a sonata, everything else relief after that, isn't it? But in, the, in this Moonlight Sonata, everything builds up to this titanic last movement, you know, and all the emotional stress is there. And so it is with this string quartet as well. So we lead into the finale from, I'll just play the very end of the slow, here's the beginning of the slow introduction. For those motif motivic spotters amongst you, you might have noticed that that theme in the first violin is the first movement upside down. It's easier to hear if you slow it down. Yeah, it's exactly the same thing. So what he's done is taken the theme of the last move, of the first movement, and inverted it. Yeah. He inverts, and the other thing he does, which it always, it always catches your ear a little bit. There are two things that catch your ear. First of all, it sounds rather... It sounds very harsh, doesn't it? You know, he's not interested in making the string quartet sound beautiful. You know, it has to be played. It's rather a horse rhythm, isn't it? Rather galloping rhythm. Um, but the, th the thing you notice is that, and then this very um, unusual harmony. He suddenly slides into D major. He's in C sharp minor, and he effectively slides up a semitone. We call that a Neapolitan relation, yeah, like this. And of course, D major is the key of the second movement. Now, what Beethoven's doing, you think, well, is he just being clever? No, he's not. He's being clever, but he's also trying to confer unity on the large-scale structure, isn't he? So that everything that he does has um, some sort of um, resonance throughout the piece. So you feel it as a unified piece. He's not just coming up with random ideas. In fact, Beethoven's architectural grasp of this large structure is incredible. Incredible. You know, uh, and if he didn't have it, it would sound very chaotic, wouldn't it? Because there's a lot of different music going on in this piece. You know, how can you go from, go from this to this? You know, to this. They're, they almost seem like different pieces, don't they? And yet they have this overarching, overarching um, identity, which, which makes it feel like a unified piece. And then if you want to talk about the music, you know, if you want to say, well, it means this or that, you can, but I'm not going to offer any explanations because, you know, it doesn't... You, you know, you, you could say that the first movement is, is full of despair of the world, isn't it? And then the second movement, the way that you go from C-sharp minor up a semitone, this is one, the wonder of tonality, isn't it? It can do these things. 
you know, because you, because you, the, the, I, I mean, you can, I, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to boot you off anything which isn't tonal, but um, with atonal music, you don't have those possibilities because, because again, everything sounds the same, doesn't it? And you might say, um, it all sounds full of tension. There isn't a progression of tension and release or contrast of key. So key, the key system is a wonderful thing, isn't it? Uh, did you, anyone, is anyone old enough here to remember 1974 and uh, Leonard Bernstein talking from Harvard University? He gave a series of um, le uh, lectures. Um, uh, uh, he was the Charles Eliot Norton Professor of Poetry. And what's more, those lectures were broadcast live on the BBC and they lasted about four hours each. Four hours. I mean, not talking all the time, but he was playing and conducting, but lots of information. But he was basically defending tonality and saying it was rooted in, it was a, it's a sort of, he was trying to argue it was a natural human phenomenon, the way we respond to tonality, you know, as opposed to other tonal, you know, non-tonal systems. Now, you can get them on YouTube now, of course, like everything. Yeah, they're really fa fascinating to watch. Um, Beethoven. Beethoven. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Well, the point about, I mean, you know, talk, talking about string quartets and piano sonatas, uh, these pieces are not um, in the public domain in the way that symphonies and operas were. That's the whole point, you know. So if, he, if, if the piano sonatas sound a, a little bit more experimental than the symphonies and, so, and also the string quartets, it's because they're meant to be. And it's even the same with Haydn. You don't think of Haydn as being an experimental composer, but we, we saw last week that he is, or he was, you know, that he was experimenting with musical ideas. And he wouldn't have tried those ideas out in such a public domain as the symphony. You know, he didn't want to risk that, but he could try it out in the quartet. And in fact, I think Beethoven said of his F minor string quartet, Opus 95, which is full of surprises, um, he said, I don't want that to be played in public. It, they can keep it to themselves, he said. He wasn't interested in projecting it as a, a piece um, that was played in publicly. He, he, he wrote it as a sort of experiment, as it were. Um, but um, yeah, so 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 we hear that in the music. So you, you you hear this dogged determination. First of all, the other thing about the key is that he's returning to the key of C sharp minor for the first time. So the the cycle of the piece has gone from C sharp minor to D major, upper tone, um, upper semitone rather, uh, and then to dominant to, to A major in the big slow movement, back to E major. Uh, and now to E major being the relative minor of major of C sharp minor, uh, and then via G sharp minor he's got back to C sharp minor. So he's back to where he started. That's the point. I won't mention much more about this piece because we will we will get um, a little bit bogged down. But um, uh, uh, apart from the fact that it would, it would you know it, it gives a lifetime of rewards, I think, doesn't it? Um, just 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 near the end, um, the, the, the 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 whole tone of the piece is one of struggle, strife, because, I mean, you know, that was his life, wasn't it, as well? You know, he wasn't having an easy time ever. Um, uh, but there's a remarkable moment when um, he almost he gives, there's a lot of tension in the music, um, as you will hear, and then suddenly, suddenly the music slides into D major. So he's going along doing this sort of thing. It's just, he gives you a glimpse of D major, which means something about the relationship between C sharp minor and D major, uh, we, because we saw it between the first and second movements. Um, and, but he doesn't allow, it, it, he'll never get, get into D major, he can't, can he, because he's in C sharp minor. So he can glimpse D major, but no more than that. And it's here. 
It's interesting, isn't it? The ending is very ambiguous because it goes suddenly into the major and it feels for, I don't know, two, three bars of optimism, isn't there? On, after a downward curve. The whole, the whole direction of the movement towards the end is very much downwards, isn't it? Da-da-da-da. It's always falling. And I, can, I always hear the opening... I hear it all over the place, upside down and all... You know, it just, it's just pre prevalent in the musical structure. And everything's moving down and then... The ending in the major somehow doesn't convince you that he's entirely solved all the problems. Anyway, I mean, I'd just le I'll leave you with that because um, you can go and enjoy listening to that wonderful quartet and all the others, of course. Um, and Beethoven's, uh, I mean, the range of Beethoven. The wonderful thing about the quartet cycle is that he starts off in his early period, shows the best of that, shows the best of his middle period works with the Razumovskis and the best of his late period with the, with the string quartets as well. The other thing you need to do is read T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets. Very, very interesting correlations between the Beethoven quartets and the structure of the poems. There's, yeah, there's an article that in one of those academic um, casebook studies uh, uh, which is with a very interesting article by a lady called Helen Gardner, yep. I think, um, edited the Oxford, one of the Oxford books of English verse. Anyway, um, it, I'd ever add, well, probably almost exactly the same time, um, the other great uh, man living in Vienna, or one of them, one of the very greatest, was Franz Schubert. And... Um, I'm always, I'm always amazed about Schubert, really, because he had such competition, didn't he? You know, he was, he was working in, living in Vienna at the same time as, as Beethoven, and yet his music is nothing like Beethoven's in, in almost every possible way. He's such an original. Um, and also, he's so talented. <laughs> you know, I always think, I always think when you hear... Um, a tune like that, no one could write a tune as good as that. I mean, just no one, not even Mozart, no one. It's just, it, there's a quality in Schubert's music, isn't there, which is just extraordinary. But if he was only just, if he was good at that, that would have been enough, wouldn't it, to be as good at writing tunes as that? But he's not. He's also the most incredibly original thinker, um, musical thinker. Um, let me just play you something. I'll start with this. I'm going to slightly, won't quite come across as it should, because I can't do the tremolandos in the way that the strings can, but I'll try. Just, I'll just do that again. I'll simplify it. And I've been, I always, um, I always find that really unusual to put it mildly, that progression. And then I, then I realised that's my daughter's wedding, younger daughter's wedding a few weeks ago. She chose this song. Do you know this? It's a great song, isn't it? Adele, it might be her Adeb uh, Wigmore Hall debut, okay? Um, 
And it's actually, the song is, she's a wonderful voice, isn't she? Amazing. Uh, it's, um, the song is actually by Bob Dylan. But I, what, what Tubas has done is actually use a, a harmonic progression, which I don't think anyone used between, um, between Schubert and Bob Dylan. Well, probably, I'm sure he did, but, but... Yeah, it's extraordinary, isn't it? It's so extraordinary. Um, it, it, the, the, the string quartet doesn't start like that. It's full of these, this is the G major quartet. Oh, the last of his great string quartets. He, there are lots of Schubert string quartets, but um, he achieves absolute greatness in, in three of them, really. The, the A minor, so-called Rosamunda, the Death and the Maiden, and the G major. The Death and the Maiden has the wonderful slow movement, which is based on the song of the same name. Uh, and, and these three pieces are you massively mas masterpieces. Um, uh, and it's as it also, it, it's, apart from being um, a tribute to Adele, it's also... Um, the, also got this extraordinary beginning, um, which, is, which is really fascinating in lots of different ways and very, very forward-looking. No, this is the G major. Um, hang on, let's find it here. Yeah, this opening. Now, the first thing you hear, it's not unlike the beginning of his other great chamber work of this period, uh, which is the C major string quintet, which starts, as you remember, with a held chord. C major, it's a C major chord, and then he introduces a diminished chord in the next bar. And then there's a turn in the first violin, which makes you think he's going in the minor, but it doesn't, he goes into the major. the same sort of feeling of uncertainty and the next chord you hear is in D minor the D minor chord anyway I'm not allowed to talk about string quintets am I because that's that's one instrument too many um, but the um, the string quartet in G major is even more amazing at the beginning so he starts notice there's no cello you just have the viola second violin the first violin holding a G major chord okay with a crescendo and then but then the second chord is a G minor chord yeah, so is this the string quartet in G major, as it says on the title page, or is it the string quartet in G minor? You don't know. G major or minor? Yeah, so he starts with a major and minor chord. Major chord, then minor. Okay. And he, he you know, he, he goes to the second chord is the dominant chord. Okay, that's all right. Chord of D, D. And then he starts with a chord on D major. And does the same thing. D major, D minor. So you, th this is not classical behaviour. This is Schubert writing in the same year as Beethoven wrote his C-sharp minor quartet, but not behaving like a, a classicist. And whatever anyone says about Beethoven, he's a, he's a classicist to the bitter end. Yeah, he's not a romanticist. Yeah, he wouldn't have understood Schubert's procedure in this. You know, because, because he's weakened. He started off, here I am in G major, like a good classical composer. 
yeah. I'm being really clear about what I'm doing. And he suddenly throws a great big spanner in the works. And the, and the, and the minor chord is written fortissimo, and it's played like this. The first violin plays four notes, the second violin plays three notes, the viola plays three notes, and the cello plays uh, one note, which means that a string quartet can play one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven notes at once, like this, yeah? Which makes it sound a bit like an orchestra, yeah? yeah. It's really quite an orchestral beginning, isn't it? And then, and then he spends, he, he, he's got, after this, he has this little tag here. And then he does the same thing, da, 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 tag. And then he takes the little tag and Makes, makes everything very unclear. Nothing's clear about where he's going until he reaches this moment, which we've already heard, of course, in two different ways. It's the Adele progression. Now, the other thing you probably noticed, which is very, very unusual, is the way that the strings, um, the underneath strings, are tremolandoing, playing very fast, repeated notes with the tips of their bows. New sound in the world of the string quartet. Is there a later composer who's very famous for writing tremolos at the beginnings of his symphony? Bruckner. Bruckner. Every single symphony begins with a, with a tremolando of some kind or another, almost every single symphony. You can catch me out on that one, but there are there some, that, some that don't, but, but he always starts with this tr sort of um, anticipatory tremolando, yeah? And it's a, it's a, a sort of orchestral texture. And the, the reason I did mention Adele is that the, um, the, the progression is so unusual. The, the first, um, and in fact, if, you, if I just play this. You'd think I was about to introduce a pop song, wouldn't you? Yeah, you really do. And that's because the first two chords are fine. But then he, it's the way he goes from that, which is a chord of D major, to F major. Completely unprepared. And what he's doing, actually, is he's taking the old um, chromatic bass line, which um, you have in Dido and Aeneas, and God knows how many other things, Bach, B minor mass, crucifixus, um, this sort of emblematic um, paradigm of a descending uh, bass and just harmonising it. Normally, in Baroque music, it's not harmonised in that way. And so on. But in, but in Baroque, in, in what Schubert does is give, it, give each one a chord. Yeah, and the chords are very, very distant from each other. So you have G major, F major, E flat major. And in terms of classical functional harmony, it's something that you don't expect to hear. You really don't expect it. And what's more, he does it once, he does it again. This time the cello has the tune upside down, but it's the same progression.
And you know how some music is, um, you can arrange it for other things. A lot of Bach will work well on lots of different combinations of instruments. You know, you can arrange fugues from the well-tempered clavier for four clarinets, it sounds fine. Um, you can jazz it up, you can do almost anything to it, it doesn't change its nature. But um, uh, there are some, uh, some, some music which is, belongs to its genre, so Chopin's piano music doesn't work in any other, I hate arrangements of Chopin. You know, people do, um, people play this, don't they, on the violin. So the violin plays the tune and the piano gets, you know, gets a very boring accompanying part. And it makes it into something which it isn't somehow. You know, it's just, it's generically, it is a piano piece, you know, and you can't argue with that. Um, and Beethoven and Mozart and Haydn's string quartets are like that. But Schubert's writing a string quartet which is like an orchestral piece, isn't it? It almost feels as though it's bursting out of its genre. Yeah? It's not conceived as a string quartet. Hans Keller in his book um, about Haydn's string quartets, the one I told you to buy, ordered ordered, um, it, uh, it dist distinguishes between composers who are string quartet composers, like, um, who think like string quartets, think string quartets like Haydn and Beethoven and Dvorak, he uses as an example, and composers who don't, who think um, in a different way about string quartets. Like, he says Bartok's a great string quartet writer, but he thinks of as, as a pianist. But, but and interestingly enough, of course, the string quartet players who um, think string quartetly are um, absolutely viol uh, string players. Like Beethoven was a wonderful violinist, Mozart and Haydn all were great string players. Yeah. Uh, so perhaps it's a way you think about it. But this, the, but, the, but the way Schubert doesn't think like a string quartet writer is a great benefit because the, it sounds like a, another sort of piece, doesn't it? And the other thing about it is it's sheer. Ex um, the, you can hear that it's going to be a long piece, can't you? Because he, he, keeps, he keeps doing the same thing over and over and over again. You know, he has this. And then he does the same thing. With the cello, only cello upside down. And then it comes back fortissimo. But the same, that same Adele-like harmony um, keeps going round and round and round. He doesn't get anywhere. And when he does get somewhere, the most extraordinary thing that happens is that he ends up in entirely the wrong place. A, a, the, the chord, the great crashing chord that you've just heard, is a cadence in the key of F sharp major, and he's in G major. Yeah, that's nowhere to behave. <laughs> it doesn't, no way to behave, I should say. It's no, it, and nowhere to behave as well, it, because it's not taking him in to the right sort of position. Uh, in other words, what I'm saying is that in the same year that Beethoven was being pretty, still, in his own way, very forward-looking, but in another way, harmonically very classical, Schubert's looking in a completely different direction. Amazing that he did, isn't it? And he does, he wants, so he ends up in F-sharp major. And, and, and just to understand the context of that, if you take your circle of fifths, which shows you the direction, uh, uh, both the direction of the keys, but also their um, distance apart from each other, G major is at one o'clock, and F-sharp major is at six o'clock. 
Yeah, so it's five hours travelling. Yeah, in order to get there. So he's in the wrong key, really. And then he introduces this other right, his second subject area, which in terms of classical harmony should be in the dominant area. So around about D major. He wants to be in D major. He's got to get to D major somehow. And he will eventually, but it takes a long time to get there. And his second area is this. It's wonderful, isn't it? But it hangs around, it doesn't really, it, it sort of circulates, it's like a bird circling, a, it's um, a vulture circulating around uh, looking at its um, prey underneath. You know, he's, his prey is the D major, but he never quite, quite gets there. He hangs about everywhere else. And it's very interesting, um, from the point of view of playing it on the piano, it really plays well. You can sit there and read it, it works. I think I can read this, you know, a string quartet. Some string quartets are really difficult to read, so which slightly gives the, uh, the clue that perhaps he was thinking pianistically in the way that he wrote his string quartets. So, but it's, um, it's, it's also got this wonderful sort of ambient gait, hasn't it, that you get in Schubert's music, sort of, um, it, it am, sort of ambling. It sort of walks not too fast. Yeah, he's going somewhere, but no, nowhere very quickly. Now he is in D major, he's in D major, but it doesn't last, he goes back. And then he plays exactly the same music, only this time the violin, the first violin has um, a, a sort of filigree um, decorative passage on top in tremolandos. Yeah. And why do you think Schubert's so, what, what generates Schubert's um, sort of ornamental like writing, do you think? Any, any thought, what did he? What, what, and, what, and what in particular, what, what did he write so many of? Songs. Yeah, and it's not the song, it's not, it's not the tunes, it's the accompaniments, isn't it? He's so inventive in accompaniments that he turns accompaniments into pieces. If there was ever was a piano accompaniment made into a single piece, that's that impromptu, isn't it? Yeah, he's just a, a master at that, that's how he thinks. Um, or even... So the tune you know but that's that the, it's always the accompaniment becomes and, and even in this of course there you have all three at once don't you yeah he does it again and again I think that one that one as well and um, and as a result he's not thinking like Beethoven in that sort of really strong structural way he's thinking like um, Alfred Brendelbos wonderfully he says he's like a sleepwalker yeah he sort of ambles around, sleepwalking. He finds his way. He's sort of, you know, he's feeling here. It has a wonderful effect. It can. It's very. You know, Schumann used the word heavenly length about the great C major symphony. Here's the first composer of long pieces, and it's what he does is turn the string quartet, which is generally a compact form, into a very, very expansive one. Um, and and he finally, you know, hits. So here, a bit, bit more of that.
And that texture is very extraordinary, isn't it, for a string quartet writing? Yeah, hard work as well, physically. And it's not really until here, which is right at the end of the exposition section, and I mean, another remarkable thing is that I'm just looking at the length of this first movement. With the repeat, it's 22 minutes long. 22 minutes. That's extraordinary. That's a whole Haydn string quartet at least, isn't it? Really extraordinary. But at this point, um, uh, which is some um, five minutes in, he's finally reached where he wants to be. Yeah, the, in terms of classic... So he's, he's a classicist, but he's breaking away from the, from the restrictions of the, of, the, of the form, as it were, of the, of, the, of the convention of always going to the dominant. He's not, even in D, he's not even behaving himself here because he's in D minor rather than D major. And that's the other thing about Schubert, of course, the ambiguity, to, ambiguity between major and minor, you know, like at the beginning of the quartet. Now, the most wonderful, well, one of the most wonderful moments that you have to hear in this quartet, I'll just have, in order to appreciate it fully, I'll just play the very beginning of the movement again. And so on. You've heard that a few times. Recapitulation. How is he going to do it? Yeah, what's he going to do? Recapitulation is when the original material and the original key of the opening, more the key than the material, but in this case it's the material as well, of the opening of the movement returns, which it does here. Uh, after 15 minutes and 40 seconds or something like that, it's quite a long way through. Um, so we're going to join us at the end of the development section, before the recapitulation. Um, and listen really carefully to what happens, because it's wonderful and very original. completely rewritten it hasn't he completely written rewritten it so it's the same thing um, uh, the same musical shape and idea you have a long chord followed by um, but of course what did you notice about the first chord I'm really putting you on the spot haven't I it's a minor chord yeah instead of a major minor he's minor and then he, he does a little crescendo but it goes yeah no big snarling dramatic um, crashing chord, and then this, yeah, 
very, very different. I'll just, if I just play the opening again and just, just, just hit you with that. Now the recapitulation. Minor. Major. So uh, uh, the next chord you're going to hear is minor or major, please. Minor. Listen to the first violin part here, it's so wonderful. So in a sense, what he's done is rebalanced the process, hasn't he? Because, because the, at the beginning, going from a, mi a major chord, starting off saying, here I am in G major, minor chord. Okay, bad, destabilising in terms of stability. Um, but what he does here is uh, recapitulation on a minor chord and then suddenly say, no, it really is major. I really did mean it to be a major chord. So it's a brilliant gesture, isn't it? And it shows that Schubert, although he's sleepwalking, he's not without his awareness of the large tail structure. Of course, you know, it's wonderful, isn't it? And the most, um, this is the most wonderful moment um, because he re, the Adele moment, which had the tremolando, is completely rewritten here. So um, the, the cello does this. Okay, so he's been <laughs> got a, um, a little bit of a promotion, um, and the viola. Sounds amazingly like a pop song like this, doesn't it? And the viol second violin does this. Like that. And then the first violin has this. Wonderful variation. It's really um, heartbreaking, heartrending, whatever. On. It's really a variation, isn't it? Yeah, it's a very, you've got the material, you can hear what the material is and he varies it on top and it's wonderful. Really, it's a wonderful approach to the recapitulation. And I promoted that highly in my little booklet, that quartet, because I think it's the one that people tend not to know so well, of the three late ones, and I think it's possibly the greatest of them all. Um, but it is very long. Um, and 
so, so um, Beethoven, C-sharp minor, Schubert, G major, both 1826. And one year later, the 19-year-old... 1909, 18-year-old, the greatest musical... Who is the greatest prodigy in music? And it's not Mozart, yes, it's Mendelssohn, no question. There's no question about that. All you have to do is go and hear a performance of the octet to be completely... He's 16, yes, it's ridiculous, it's ridiculous. What he didn't do was improve at the same rate. <laughs> Unfortunately... And you know, and you can... Actually, this is a really good illustration, but he was only... He was 18. Um, I, I the, 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 this is the, um, his second string quartet in A major, or A minor. This is really interesting, actually, because the, the very fascinating thing about this string quartet, written in 1827... Well, one is that it, does no longer feel, it definitely doesn't feel like a classical piece. It feels like a romantic piece. And secondly, um, it starts and ends in A major for only about um, 16 bars. And the rest of it's in A minor. Well, the main, you know, the, the first and last movements, but the segment bulk of them, those segments are in A minor. So, is it a quartet of an A minor or A major? Who knows, you know. But it's often referred to as A major, um, and that's because it starts in A major. That little phrase, da 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 dee, is very Mendelssohnian, isn't it? Can't really tell you why that melodic tag he uses all again and again in his music. Yeah, you're just just a little a little trademark. Um, so that's the very beginning, and then I, I, I won't, I'll play you just before it uh, reaches the coda. Um, so this is in the last movement, which starts like that. Just the last minute or so of that. Here we are. And I'll just cut for time. Sorry about that. End. Okay. Now, um, therefore, though those that passage, that adagio passage, only occurs at the beginning of the piece and the end of the piece. So that's a very that's like a bookmark, isn't it? Or like bookends, you know, like bookends. Yes, bookends. So um, what's happening in the middle is the real business of the piece. 
And you wonder why he wrote that introduction and epilogue like that. Well, but there, there is a little clue, perhaps, that will gradually unfold. Um, the um, introduction that you've just heard, the end, which is the same as the, as the end, leads to um, a fast movement, Allegro Vivace, um, which starts like this. That's the beginning of the piece, one minute and 12 seconds. Now, a further clue might come if we go back to Beethoven, and two years, late, two years earlier, Beethoven wrote his A minor string quartet, um, opus 132. In fact, the one in terms of opus numbers after the C sharp minor that we've just been talking about, which starts with a very slow, mysterious introduction. But when you reach the, when you reach the Allegro, you might notice something very strongly. He nicked it. It's the same theme, isn't it? Yeah, as, as near as damn it. Yeah, it's as near as damn it. The Mendelssohn is this. And the Beethoven is this. It's the same. It's the same. He's, he has at least heard it, hasn't he? Very strongly and written it into his music. Um, not that it's a criticism, that's not a criticism because it sounds like Mendelssohn, doesn't it? Is one. I mean, you imagine being able to do that when you're 18. It's, it's brilliantly written, isn't it? Um, and Beethoven also breaks up the music with this sort of recitative. You know, he, he gets going. And then... It's challenged by the slow music, which suddenly, suddenly breaks it up. Um, and just bear that in mind with the Mendelssohn later on. There's something in Mendelssohn music, though, which is more insistent, and the patterns that you get, da-da-da, tend to be more repetitive. 
which you notice in romantic music, much less contrast of texture. You know, melodic ideas tend to be very repetitive. Schumann, yeah? Schumann, he, he, he's a repeater, if ever there was one, isn't he? I mean, it's wonderful, but it's a, it's a texture which keeps going on. If you look at the page of um, romantic music, it looks much more similar than the page of Mozart or Beethoven in terms of shape. You know, you get the same sort of patterns which are repeated over and over and over again. Um, uh, now, um, uh, not, this isn't in any way to deride the Mendelssohn because it's, it, it, is, it is a really wonderful piece. Um, I'll just, just pick out a wonderful striking passage into the coda uh, where he um, repeats the main theme in the violins, but it's wonderfully set up um, with an accompanying pattern in the um, second violin and the um, first violin, or second violin, go do da do da do da, and the chords in the viola and cello. Um, but it's just a particularly wonderful, effective part um, of the piece, a wonderfully effective bit of um, violin writing. So I've got to dodge back to the, that one, and it's at the opening again, good, that's there, uh, 6.20. So we're near the end of the first movement of the Mendelssohn. Isn't that, sorry, isn't that, God, you've got, to, you've, got to, you, you've got to admit, it is. the violin concerto a few years earlier. At this point, how far off would you say you were from the end of the movement? Does it feel very close or a little bit longer to go? Quite close. I feel it needs a bit more time though, doesn't it, to really finish itself? Because the problem is he's, he's um, set up a, this harmonic thing going on here. Uh. So he needs, to, he needs to settle that process down, um, which he does but he does it like this.
Now, you wouldn't... What, what I'm saying, really, is that that need that you have in classical music to do this a lot... <laughs> ..has vanished. You can just do this. That's enough, yeah? That's enough. So something has changed, hasn't it? And then into the slow movement, the beginning of the slow movement, there's a wonderful change of colour. So he's gone from A minor to the key of F major, which is always a really satisfying thing to do. Really satisfying thing to do. Is everyone here familiar with the idea that Mendelssohn did write string quartets? Because they're not, they're, not, they're not totally and completely in the repertoire. You know, there's repertoire and then there's re down one rung, and it's down one rung at the moment, a little bit. People will play them, but people don't know them generally. You know, they're better known than they used to be, but they're really worth exploring. There are these two early ones, Opus 12 and Opus 13, three Opus 44, and a really great one that he wrote, a very tragic piece, very tortured piece, that he wrote after the death of his sister Fanny. Opus 80 in F minor, which is quite, quite a shocking piece, actually, for Mendelssohn. Because one of the things, you know, when you can, what you can accuse of Mendelssohn of is sometimes um, sentimental sweetness, can't you? You can say it's a little bit sugary, and, but it's not in that. It's a really powerful piece, the Opus 80. But I think the string quartets, you, you can enjoy them all. They're really fantastic pieces. Um, now, um, he starts off like that, and after a little bit, he then, it then develops into a little fugue. Now, you can guess what I'm going to do next, possibly, possibly. This is Beethoven, Opus 95, second movement, which starts like this. And this, there's something amazing about this as well, but um, I just happened to discover this by doing this recording process. But this is the beginning of the second, second movement. Okay, so that's fair. Mendelssohn hasn't been doing any pilfering there, but after, and this is after one minute and 12 seconds, which is exactly the same duration into the work that the Mendelssohn is, Beethoven does this.
funny, you can sense the greatness of Beethoven's music that isn't present in Mendelssohn in a way, can't you? It's just... It's quite hard to put your finger on it quickly, very quickly, but it's but the, but clearly Mendelssohn has been listening there, you know, and had the same idea. But but what's really interesting is that you know these late quartets of Beethoven um, weren't something that you know went into posterity and then a hundred years later everyone wakes up to them. Mendelssohn had really must have known them really well and was responding really quickly to them, wasn't he? I think that's a wonderful thing. Not a. Oh, but he would have had the music. He would have known. He would have known them. Yeah, no. I mean, I'm not saying they were they were performed. They weren't what they weren't performed in the public spaces that we, you know, the sort of concert halls of Vienna. Whatever, but there weren't many concert halls, were there really? But um, but um, what, what, one of the things to understand, one of the reasons I'm spending so much time on this earlier period of the string quartet is that the 19th century saw a real retreat of string quartets. You know, after Mendelssohn and his seven, seven or eight great quartets, um, you know, Brahms struggles to write string quartets. Writes three, doesn't he? Schumann writes three. You know, then if you didn't miss string quartets, if you never heard string, Schumann's string quartets, you're not going to suffer that much. But I would recommend you to listen to them because they're they're worth hearing. But but do you see what I mean? What I'm saying by that, you know, but the Brahms quartet, three quartets are, are, are striking pieces. Uh, but but not his greatest chamber music. I would um, add slightly tentatively because it's always a bit difficult to say that. Um, but um, but it's incredible, isn't it? After a, after you know a, a series of um, string quartets by Haydn, fifty great quartets by Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, extraordinary range. The Romantic era uh, causes a sort of paralysis uh, for several reasons. One is the rise of the virtuoso. You know the virtuoso pianist and violinist. You know, so that so the idea of democratic chamber music, uh, democracy as well. You know, what do romantics like? Individuality. Yeah. So the string quartet is hardly an individualistic form, is it? Um, secondly, there's the um, rise of programmatic music or music and words together. Opera, song, uh, descriptive music. Not very good for string quartets. As, as we discover, how I hope we've been discovering, the string quartet is the ultimate, um, the ultimate space for if, uh, exploring abstract musical ideas, isn't it? You know, rather than rather than describing fountains. You know, you can do that. Pianos are good at fountains, aren't they? You, know, you can't do that on a violin very easily at all. Um, no, but that sort of that sort of thing. Um, um, and also, well, the other thing as well, actually, is that Schuppinze, um, who Beethoven was writing quartets for, was a, had a great quartet, and he died, once he died in 1830, the next great string quartet was apparently founded by a man called Heldensberger, uh, Heldersberger in 1849. So we didn't have lots of string quartets performing music. It wasn't a, you know, they weren't about. So, the, so lots of, for lots of reasons. Anyway, back to, back to, back to the Mendelssohn. Um, we'll, we're, we'll run out of time, but... Um, we, here's the beginning of the end uh, of the... Oh, no, well, one thing. Actually, one, here's something that Mendelssohn... This is the third movement. It's not a scherzo. It's an intermezzo. It's something that Mendelssohn's really good at. This sort of thing. It's rather like a romantic character piece, isn't it? It has a slightness about it that doesn't almost doesn't belong to the string quartet, but it's very effective, isn't it? Okay, and then um, that has a wonderful contrasting trio, but you can explore that yourselves. Um, the last movement, the finale, gives you a bit of a, a shock. 
Oh, Mendelssohn Scherzo. So the movement starts properly when you hear that theme. Yeah, and so on. Bear that in mind. And it started uh, from the very beginning with a... It's not a million miles away from the Ninth Symphony, isn't it? A Beethoven. Yeah. But it's much more close, much closer, in fact, um, to this. Okay, I can, we won't have, be able to play the whole movement. That's the beginning of the fourth movement of Beethoven's Opus 132 string quartet in A minor, which is a march-like movement in A major, which is quite a relief after quite a lot of the, the struggle that he's been through. And towards the end of that, we have this. Oh, no, sorry. I'm sure you can hear the link. There's no question there, is there? Yeah, so he's, this, he's almost exactly the same music. The, 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 um, the idea of taking a recitative. But what um, Mendelssohn does is integrate the recitative into the whole movement. Yeah, so, so going back to the Mendelssohn, which started like this, you might remember. which is in fact exactly the same as the Beethoven recitative, um, but you know, it's a good idea, so why not use it? And, um, uh, but, but later on in the movement, we have this.
which is the fugue from the second movement. So he's doing um, Beethoven Ninth Symphony. He's learning a lot of lessons from Beethoven, isn't he? Which you some, sometimes hear that people didn't learn them in the 19th century because they were too frightened of him. You know, like Brahms was always waiting to write his symphony, first symphony, because he had Beethoven, you know, whoops, <laughs> he's, he's behind me, you know, and I can't face... Like, but Mendelssohn's taking a lot of lessons from Beethoven, really, really absorbing some of the ideas very quickly. But it's a new style, isn't it? It's a really, and if you hear the, the end of the movement, it's, it's wonderful. It has a sort of freedom which is very romantic. Um, and then there's a series of recitatives, and then we go into the final epilogue. It would make a nice way to finish the, the, just to listen to the end of this wonderful quartet. So a quartet in A minor or major, depending on which book you read, uh, opus 13, ending... Somewhere, it's somewhere around here, I think. That's the recitative. And it leaves you, it's a very indecisive ending, isn't it? Because you don't get a proper cadence, you get what we call, you call a plagal cadence, going from the fourth degree of the scale. And that's... 
Yeah. yeah, that's such a romantic ending, isn't it? But we're still in 1827, which is the year of Beethoven's death. And next week, I can guarantee something you won't like. <laughs> as well as some things you will, I hope. So thank you very much. See you then. Thank you.